0: Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. This is your host, Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. This podcast is powered by Stick and Ball TV, the baseball and softball streaming platform. If you're listening to this show, then I know you're a coach with a growth mindset. So I encourage you highly to check out Stick and Ball. Stick and Ball has weekly uploads from some of the top coaches in the country for baseball and softball. It's absolutely a no brainer. Check it out at stickandball.tv or on the Stick and Ball TV mobile app. On today's show, we have on Dr. Brian Moses, head baseball coach at McPherson College. Brian just finished his fifth season as the head coach at McPherson and his ninth overall as a collegiate head coach. He also serves as the assistant athletic director for internal operations and is the lead play by play broadcaster for both football and basketball. In 2021, the Bulldogs accomplished their highest winning percentage in Bulldog program history, compiling a record of 38 and 15. And during the campaign, the Bulldogs landed on the national stage after being ranked number 17 in the country. In the conference tournament, the Bulldogs knocked off the number one seed en route to advancing to the championship game. And after the conclusion of the conference tournament, the team was awarded a regional berth in O'Fallon, Missouri, as the number four seed. The Bulldogs won two games in O'Fallon and were just one game away from the championship round. During the season, the Bulldogs shattered the following team records, single season wins, team winning percentage, seven all KCAC award winners, batting average, RBIs per game, slugging, runs per game, hits per game, doubles per game, home runs per game, opponents batting average, strikeouts per game, shutouts, and team fielding percentage. It is my pleasure to introduce to you
1: Dr. Brian Moses.
0: Brian, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Yeah, what a what a good opportunity. I appreciate you having me on. Well, I
0: I appreciate the compliment, and, and I'm I'm really excited to to get to dig in with you today. And and so we were you know talking off the mic a little bit about uh, McPherson, and really you guys have have built it from the ground up. And so I, I think that that is just a, the the best compliment that you can give a coach, which you take a program that. Hasn't been super successful, we could say, and then to develop it into what you guys have got going on right now, which is you guys are rolling and, and had the best season in history last year. So I want to know. Let's let's trace it back to you're going through the interview process, and I I kind of want to know what what attracted you to McPherson, and then what was your plan? Because again, you're you're taking over a program that, in the nicest way possible, hasn't had as much success as you wanted. And so you're, you're taking over this program. What, what, how did you set the baseline? What was the foundation like, and just walk us through just your vision, why you interviewed and then some of your first steps.
1: You know, the interview process was interesting because, so I was at Brown at the time and I was an assistant coach there in the Ivy league, Uh, but I wanted to get back into being a head coach and I, and, and I was okay with it being at the NAI level. I actually enjoy it. Um, I ended up having two job offers. And I took McPherson college, um, because of the area, uh, the chances to win within the conference and, really the athletic director at the time, uh, was just so easy to be around. Um, and he kind of, he kind of sold it to me that this was the place to be. Um, now I was worried, I'm not gonna lie to you. I was worried because they hadn't won, uh, they hadn't won games. The year before I got here, they had won eight games. And, um, I, we did need to lay the groundwork and change the culture. And, and the first thing we needed to do was get people to be accountable. Um, there was, uh, when I came in here, there was a lot of finger pointing and there was a lot of, it's not my fault. And, uh, I remember the first meeting, um, the best player on our team was sitting in the back of the room and he had an issue with my plans and I could tell him he's back there shaking his head. And I said, you know, is there a problem back there? You know, and, um. He said, no, I'm okay. I said, all right, either buy in right now or leave the room. And I felt like that was a big moment for our program. It wasn't me flexing my muscles. It was just me basically letting the program know that we all have to be pulling on the same rope. And I think that that, uh, that went a long way. Um, we needed to add more people that were ready to win right away. Okay, so there was a lot of high school recruiting, um, high schoolers, and. You know, in an abundance, too many of them, it it wasn't working out. We needed a mix. We got into recruiting transfers. We got into recruiting college, uh, junior college transfers. We were able to get, you know, a couple D2 or D1 kickbacks. They came in and made it and made immediate impacts. There was all this effort going into growing this young talent, and it wasn't growing enough. And so we needed to complement freshmen um, with transfers. And now we've actually become a little bit more predominant with transfers. So um, that's just a little glimpse of what we tried to do right away. Um, The other thing we did is I installed this program where we're we're trying to earn a brick. Um, One of our one of our mottos is to try to uh, build the program brick brick by brick. So whenever we do something perfect, um, you know, we earn a brick and we write the date on it and what we did. Um, And so we've got stacks of those bricks in our dugout right now. Um, but I can remember talking to them about bricks and they all thought it was kind of weird. First weekend that we ever had at McPherson college, we go down to this little tournament in Dallas and we sweep, we win all four games. And um, I thought, man, I wish I had a brick and I'm not going to tell you where I was, but I actually stole a brick from where we were. And when we got halfway, uh, halfway home, I, I held the brick up on the bus saying, look what we earned. This is what I was talking about. And everybody kind of went crazy. And from that point on, I think, uh, our culture started to improve.
0: Oh, that's wonderful! And so i I want to know. So you 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 inherited a lot of players that had been used to losing, and uh, obviously that's not the standard that you guys have now. And so, wh- like, just just tell us, you know how how hard is that transition? Just because I think that when you're used to something, that's kind of the standard, and it takes a lot to be able to to convince guys otherwise. And so you're having to get them to believe and, and hope and you coming into a program uh, that's new, I'm sure, was was super helpful. But was there ever a moment, like a moment in time that you felt that tide turning and you were like, uh, this may not have been the moment, but this was a moment that I can look back to and go, OK, we're starting to, to get this thing turned around?
1: Yeah, what they needed was, first of all, they were failing and they were like really bad at failing. Like they handled it horribly. (laughs) And so we needed to get them to understand that they were going to fail. But what they needed is they needed someone to care about them as people. And I think I brought that right away. Um, They knew I took an interest in their lives and I took an interest in them as a person. So it wasn't just, oh, I failed and I let everybody down and now my day's over it was okay. I failed, and I'm and Coach Moses and his staff is going to turn that into a teaching moment and uh, try to get me better, not only as a as a player but as a person. And I think once we did that, um, the tide started to turn. I also think we gave them some small measurements at what we could co- try to accomplish instead of coming in and saying, "Hey, we're going to win the conference." Um, we're going to say, "Hey, we need to finish in the top six. We need to finish top six to make the conference tournament." And if we do that, we'll we'll be the, in the conference tournament for the first time. You know, we had no time to recruit, so I didn't kind of know what what measurements um, to give our players in order for them to feel good about themselves. So we gave them that one, and for the first time in school history, we did finish sixth. We were picked to finish last that year, and we broke the school wins record. So the combination of those those two things with our coaching styles, I think, helped a lot.
0: I love hearing that, and and I, I think that. You know, I, I I've obviously never been a head coach, so it, it's interesting getting to hear you know the behind the scenes because you look at at what you guys have done since you've been there, and it's it's been an upward trajectory, but it's not you know it's not always easy, and man, I I, I really like that you you hit on earlier you had to get the right mix of players with transfers and high school kids, and I, I think one of the unique things that you have to do there is you have to. Find guys that fit your mold based on, you know, your coaching style, what you guys do well, the conference that you're in and all of these different things and find that right mix of this is how we win here. And so if not necessarily looking at it on the recruiting trail, but where have you guys found that you are like, because obviously offense was a huge thing for you guys this spring, because I think you said every school record imaginable, but how did you get to that point? And how did you decide, okay, we're going to be really good at X, Y, and Z because we feel like we've got these players and this is going to help us win.
1: Yeah. I think our philosophy is offensively are really cutting edge. And I I think that that helps us. Um, We do play at an offensive ballpark. I'm the first to admit that Um, it's an offensive yard and it'll drive you crazy or, or it'll, it'll make you happy. Um, But what we want to do as hitters and, and coach McKinnon, who is our hitting coach, Kyle McKinnon, who's actually right now the head coach with the and Bacon. Um, you know, we teach, uh, we want to hit the ball in the air. Uh, we want to be, or we want our we want our bat head in the zone for a long period of time. And, um, you know, we want to see the numbers of the, ba- on the backs of the outfielders. So we're trying to do damage. We believe damage is done out in front. Uh, and we're trying to get the bat head out there to do that. Uh, we want to hit the ball in the air. Uh, and so, uh, with these philosophies, I think that they've, they've really helped us. We know how to win at our park. Um, you know, I'm not doing a lot of small ball. I'm not doing a lot of micromanaging the offense. Um, do I believe in bunting? Yes, I do. Um, but I don't do it a lot. I'd rather, uh, you know, run around second, no outs. I'd rather have three chances to score them than for the most part, bunt them to third and never run around third base with one out. Um, I, I think that everybody in our lineup one through nine, can leave the yard and I want them to have every single pitch and opportunity to be able to do that. Um, and so I don't take the bat of their hands very often, a lot of three Oh, green lights. Um, we want crooked numbers. And so, um, you know, I think offensively we've been able to do that. And then we've been able to bring in the players that kind of meet those standards and also buy into that philosophy. I mean, what hitter doesn't want to buy into that philosophy. Um, having said that though, we celebrate other, topics of hitting on base percentage. I mean, if you're on base, then you're going to be a guy that scores when somebody hits a double off the wall or a three run homer or whatever on base percentage is a key is a key stat for us. Walks hit by pitch. We are aggressive running. Uh, we have a high success of stealing bases. So we, we still will do that. Um, but to be able to bring in uh, players that can immediately swing it here, buy into our philosophies and, um, and i think the combination of myself and coach mckinnon really helps he is going to work mechanics he's going to work on that bat path he's going to use blast sensors to be able to go over data and figure out how to generate more bat speed i am going to talk to them about count recognition what are we doing in a 3-1 why did we chase a slider 3-1 um you know i'm going to talk about those things so um i think that with, with what we've been able to do together it's been really really helpful for us and i hope to continue that offensively
0: no doubt and, and we can dig into uh, some more of the practice stuff here but uh, but i'm getting a little ahead of, ahead of myself you know offensive guy too so uh, getting sure. excited but let's look back to okay you 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 have this kid and and you talk to him about uh the standards that you're gonna set i want to know how did you you know what are your standards number one and then What's the accountability piece within that and essentially, why did you decide on those? Because, you know, every program is going to be run different and we're going to have different standards or words on a wall. But it's another thing to go into somewhere and and see them implemented on a daily basis. And I would love to hear your process of, of making that happen.
1: Yeah. So our standards for each player, like first, don't be an ass. And I didn't say the rest of that word because it probably wouldn't have been good on the, on the podcast. Um, <laughs> oh, good. But, but, yeah, you can't come in and be a jerk. We're, we're not going to deal with it. Um, I want to wake up and look forward to seeing each and every one of these players. And then I want the players to feel the same. I also want players to come in and be themselves. I do not need someone to act the way that they think I want them to act. And I'll tell you what, I'm not normal. Like, I'm really not a normal coach. I have a colorful personality. I'm not afraid to show it. Um, you know, like I hug my players, uh, we love our players and like, we're outgoing, uh, we have high standards. And so we want them to come in and be comfortable in their own skin. Um, we also want them to buy into new ways because we're not, we're not really old school. The only thing I'm passionate about that I'm really old school on as runners on third base, less than two outs have to score. <laughs> um, other than that, like we do some new things and you got to buy in. You got to buy in. If you don't buy in, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have to find a new place for you to play. Um, and so we don't want anyone talking behind the backs of the coaches. Uh, we want to make sure that we're always respectful to the process. Um, and so those are, those are kind of our standards for, for each player. Um, and, you know, we don't want any laziness. We don't want that. Uh, that's not going to fly in our program. And uh, mm-hmm. we also want to bring in players that are proud of the history first meeting. And I, I think our returners are probably tired of it. I talk about what we did year one, year two, year three, year four. And, and I go over what we did and how amazing that was. And then we talk about how we can do one more amazing thing this coming year. And um, So, you know, th- those are kind of our philosophies for each kid and we hold them accountable to them.
0: No doubt. Well, you hear the the term culture. Uh, thrown around a lot these days and and that means so many different things to so many different people. But again, uh, I, I love the transitions that, you, that you've been talking about, but, uh, how does, what does culture mean to you? How do we promote that on a daily basis? Similar to your standards, uh, and, and standards are based on like, these are, these are what we do to be able to build that every single day. You talked about, uh, Hugging your players, but also telling them the truth, the truth and all of that stuff builds into culture. But, I, you know, I would be remiss to to go a a show without asking, you know, what does culture mean to you and, and all of those different things. But is there anything
1: else that you'd like to add for the culture piece? You know, just that culture is everything. If you don't have it, you're not enjoying your time. If you're not enjoying your time, you're probably not working as hard as you can. You're ready to get out of there. Uh, you bring bad culture home with you. If you've got bad culture at practice with your team, I'm not going to leave in a good mood. I'm going get, to get with my wife when I get home. She's going to know something's wrong. You know, they're going to go back with their roommates. They're going to know something's wrong. If you don't establish culture and hold kids accountable, you won't have a good time. You won't win and you won't have a job very long. So, yeah, culture is everything.
0: Well, question for you, too, with that. Uh, how much of, of culture is defined by you? And I, I think for me, and this, again, just tell me, I'd, I'd love to to hear your thoughts on this. But it's players are <laughs> players are almost like toddlers, like I have a three-year-old. And he is consistently pushing the boundaries of what they can and cannot get away with. And if I am completely stern to a thousand different things, then it's really hard for me to uphold it. But if I let him have some freedom within the constraints of a few things, then, you know, it's, it's being a toddler. And most of the time, most of the time we get the result that we want, not all the time, because it's, (laughs) it's, it's, you know, he's three, Uh, but I, you know, players can be taught like toddlers sometimes. So I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, you, so how, how important is is setting the guidelines and the standards up front and saying, this is what we're going to do here and then upholding them to that. Or do you like, I, I, like, I don't know, go with that where you may.
1: Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Toddlers. Right. I know what you mean. Um, so yeah, we, mine's mine's two and a half. So we're like the same guy right now. Um, oh, that's awesome. but, but Col- Like for me, I honestly believe that kids don't really listen that much. Like nowadays, I don't know. We've probably all, you and I, Jonathan, have probably played for coaches that talk to you after practice and kill it until it gets dark. And, and, yeah. So we can't do that anymore. And if you, if you're going to do that, you're, you're going to lose them because they're they're missing out on their Tinder swipes or whatever they want to do. Mm. So, so we have to make sure that we keep it short and to the point, but I think that culture and holding people accountable is all about how you carry yourself. How do you address each player? How do you walk onto the field? Um, you know, does the coach take an interest in me or does he just want to win and get his next job? Um, you know, those types of things are what they look at. When I come into the office to talk to Coach Moses, does he look me in the eye and is he honest with me? Um, when I ask for help, do I get help or do they say they're going to help me and then they don't? Um, so I think that those are the most important, important points of, of creating a culture and, and making sure everyone's accountable and then, and then having it rub off on the players.
0: Well, I think that it's, it's authentic to you too. Like you're not trying to do something like we have a John Calipari clip that we're going to play at some point in time. You're not trying to be him. You're it's actually to uh, pieces. it's actually
1: Gino, you, UConn. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's right. Oh, yeah. excuse me. You're uh,
0: but you're not trying to be either, either of those guys. And because it's, it's different with your personality, with the program that you got with the players that you got in the type of country that you're in, the, the type of even sport, but uh, authenticity goes so far in just everything because I, players, players know like we, we talk so much that players can sniff out who's actually being real and who's not.
1: Well, I tell you what, I mean, play the Gino clip and then we'll, we'll, I'll kind of discuss how I use this in, in, in my opening speech to my players, because it hit, it hits home with everything you just talked about.
2: Recruiting enthusiastic kids is harder than it's ever been. Because every kid watches TV and they watch the NBA or they watch Major League Baseball or they watch the NFL, whatever sport they watch, WNBA, it doesn't matter. And what they see is people just being really cool. So they think that's how they're going to act. And they haven't haven't even figured out which foot to use as a pivot foot and they're going to act like they're really good players. You see it all the time see it every AAU tournament. You see it every high school game. So recruiting kids that are, like, really upbeat and loving life and love the game and have this tremendous appreciation for when their teammates do something well, that's hard. That's hard. It's really hard. So on our team, we, me, my coaching staff, we put a huge premium on body language. And if your body language is bad, you will never get in the game. Ever. I don't don't care how good you are. If somebody says, well, you know, you just benched Stewie for, you know, 35 minutes in the Memphis game a couple years ago. Yeah, I did. Oh, that was to motivate her for the South Carolina game the following Monday. No, it wasn't. Stewie was acting like a 12-year-old. So I put her on the bench and said, sit there. It doesn't matter on our team. Now, the other coaches might say, well, you can do that because you got three other, you know, All-Americans. I get that. I understand that. But I'd rather lose than watch kids play the way some kids play. I'd rather lose. And they're allowed to get away with just whatever. And they're always thinking about themselves. Me, 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 me. I didn't score, so why should I be happy? I'm not getting enough minutes. Why should I be happy? That's the world that we live in today, unfortunately. And kids check the scoreboard sometimes because they're going to get yelled at by their parents if they don't score enough points don't get me started so when i when I look at my team they know this when I watch game film I'm checking what's going on on the bench and if somebody's asleep over there somebody doesn't care somebody's not engaged in the game they will never get in the game ever and they know that they know I'm not kidding.
1: Yeah, so I love Gino. And when he talks, I listen. And he's a huge accountability guy. And what he's saying in that video is like, when players show up to your school, they're not ready, because they've been a part of these organizations that are all about me, 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 what do I do to get to the next level? Um, They're all about money making. And so our society has ruined the art of just being really, really content with winning the game. And, um, you know, you see it all the time in baseball. It's no different than what he's saying where that like Twitter is a nightmare. I hit a triple and I get tagged or I hit a home run and I I get tagged uh, from like a freshman or, or, or maybe a 2022 recruit or whatever. It's like, who won? Who won the game? Did you lose 15 to one? I don't know. Are you, are you okay with, with just putting out what you did all the time? Uh, I know that we're trying to get recruited. Like I understand that, but don't you think that you are impressing a coach uh, when you actually tweet about winning or losing the contest? Don't you think that your teammates would appreciate that? I mean, when I go out to like travel ball games for the most part, Jonathan, it is a brutal, brutal culture. The parents are terrible. Um, it's usually either complaining or just kind of waiting for their son to come up. That's the only thing that matters. And I think sometimes it's all that matters to the player. What am I going to hit? What am I going to pitch? Is there a coach here watching me? And, and I think we're losing team aspect. We're losing, um, I think, the ability to deal with failure because in travel ball, you you, you kind of get what you want, right? You get it. You paid for it. You get what you want. In my program, you don't get what you want. You get what you earn. And I think that that's a tough transition for the players that grow up in travel ball that come right in here. And that's, that's what Gino is talking about.
0: Oh, really good. So uh, let's, let's talk about the process of building teams. So we have this obstacle and it's, it, you know, it could see, I, I've chosen in the last couple of years to take things that people gripe about and make them a competitive advantage for us. So like one of the things that that I think a lot of people gripe about is, you know, one of them is, is the team building aspect and culture, which is why you hear it all the time, because it's so rare. But baseball IQ is another one. You know, baseball IQ is going down. Cool. Well, like that, we're going to use that as a competitive advantage against your guys because we're going to teach it and we're not going to gripe about it. So I think that that's a really, a really great point that you bring up. So talk, talk to us about the process of building teams, because again, the guys that you get, they have spent most of their career trying to, to get to that level, trying to be recruited and in some ways uh, can be a selfish aspect. And, and in some ways you may get players that, that aren't, but tell us a little bit about how you're using that to your advantage.
1: So this is how I want to build my program. Number one, I want junior college transfers. And why do I want them? Not just because they're ready to to compete, but because the JUCO coaches who are so good in this country, they've already knocked all of that crap out of them. So the junior college players will understand for the most part when they get here about, you know, getting what you earn instead of getting what you want. Um, Then you need to identify the freshmen that you recruit uh, that are special that have the work ethic and that can grow on the program. And now like, for example, James Kinnar, Trevor Johnson, just, just up the top of my head, just freshmen that are in our program, they started as freshmen, they didn't get what they wanted. And now they're getting what they earn. And what they do is they rub off on the freshmen that we have come in who don't understand that they need to either be patient or get what they earn. You gotta lean on your upperclassmen. And I think that you need to lean On a combination of players who come from other programs who thought they had it all figured out when they were freshmen and then you need to lean on players that you've personally developed in your program to be able to help the young guys Um, if you're able to to kind of produce that then you're on the right track as a coach oh great discussion
0: one of the one of the things that i'm always trying to to do is to do a better job of increasing player ownership you know when I think the best teams that I've ever been a part of the players, uh, you know, coaches had a a pulse on the team, but it wasn't solely driven by players or coaches. It was both. And so how, how have you found to be able to increase player ownership, give them uh, build uh, like give them, give them ownership to really take control of quote unquote their team uh, within the context of your program. And I, I I just want to hear
1: more about that. Yeah. I make them talk to me. I mean I, when they fail and I can really see good. that they've got that it's it's not my fault sort of a uh, sort of a I don't know a walk to them or a strut, I make them talk to me and they, I mean I know they're in a bad mood I don't care. I mean we, we need to turn that into a learning situation and and um, instead of them thinking it's not their fault, you know it'll be like uh, strike three called strike three way off the plate but I'm actually okay with my player saying something about it. If he, if he, if it's, if it's in good taste to the umpire. Um, but when he comes back like the, the hole at bats, not his fault. It's like, well, wait a minute. Why did you miss the one, one fastball? You know, why did you fall off the curveball that he left at your belt? You know, in the one, one count, those are your fault. Um, maybe he called strike three on a fastball that you can't reach. That's probably not your fault because you have a good idea of the strike zone but what you could control in that at bat, you didn't. So it needs to be a combination of letting the player know, yeah, you got hosed. It's a terrible call, which happens way too often. Um, but also you missed on some opportunities in that at bat and you need to take ownership of that. And same thing with, with uh, defensive work, same thing with uh, weight room, you know, you got to take that attitude in there as a coach. Don't let him walk. Don't let the guys walk away. And and pretend it's not their fault. Get them to understand. There's some things here that are your fault. Understand that. And guess what? It's okay. And that's kind of how we do it. You sound like
0: the baseball version of Jocko Willink, just extreme ownership.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I, I <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment, I guess. <laughs>
0: yeah, that is for sure. <laughs> so with with that being said, let, let's go over you know what what you guys are are planning on doing this fall. You know, last I I, I don't want to go over last year because let's hope that. You know the we don't have the regulations and and the 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 hoops that we have to jump through for this year that we did last year, but right. just what what would be what would be your idea on how you guys are going to use the time this fall? Give us some highlights. What you guys have felt uh, like you were very successful in? Maybe things that you're doing differently, or just just kind of walk us through uh, some different things that you guys are doing there.
1: Well, you mentioned last year, so let me get off topic just for a second. And oh, sure, go ahead. Yeah, so. There were regulations last year, and our kids did a good job following them. And um, our players were, were really just immaculate last year in being able to navigate COVID. We really didn't have many interruptions. But it's weird how baseball works. So we have another year where we set a wins record here. We go into the conference tournament. Game one, we play at night. We play against Kansas Wesleyan. And shout out to them because they had a really good year. And they beat us. They did a nice job in that game. Bill Neal and his staff does a good job over there. And so now the next day, since we lose, we're an elimination game against Oklahoma Wesleyan, who's the top, who was the top team in our conference last year. Well, they go up five to two, and we're in the bottom of the eighth inning. And they've got, I think it was the reliever of the year in the game. We ended up getting first and second one out, and Noah Nelson gets a fastball down and in and hits a three-run bolt to tie the game. And at that moment, Everything in our lives changed. It's amazing what one swing of the bat did. Um, You know, from that moment on, we thought we can accomplish anything in that game and in that tournament. And uh, two innings later, it might have been actually before, but Cody Muncy was the player of the year in the NAI last year, well-deserved. We – and I believe it was tied at the time. Bases loaded, one out, Muncy's up, 3-0. He takes a fastball and then grounds into a double play in the 3-1. And um, it was just an amazing game where you had one swing of the bat that gave you momentum, and then everything went your way. James Kinnar has a game-winning single to win the game. Then we win the next day. Then we get a regional berth. Then we win two games in a regional. And, um, you know, I just like reminiscing on that moment you talked about oh, last wonderful. year. So, yeah. yeah, so I wanted I wanted to do that. But um, they say momentum's not a real thing. Yeah. Oh, it it is. I mean, I was down and I was really, I was in the bullpen and I was just in the bullpen to be with the pitchers and be with the guys for a second, just to make sure that everyone was going to be okay. Cause everybody's thinking, Oh my God, it's a senior's last game. And when I saw the ball leave the bat, I thought, Oh man, we're in for it now. And uh, you know, I get chills thinking about it. I just love when our players who I've been around for a while succeed. It really lights you up. Uh, but getting back to um, what you were saying in the fall, this fall, we're going to kind of do what we did last fall. COVID still kind of prevented us from seeing a lot of the freshmen we have uh, mm-hmm. enough times. So we're going to have this thing called the freshman 48, where we just see our freshmen for 48 hours. They're going to have the field. Um, that way we can learn a little bit more about them and decide kind of what we want to do with JV. And um, it'll help us. It'll really help us do that. Um, and, then, and then we'll have uh, we'll have our you know our, our varsity practices and our full squad practices and um i think that this year we can get back to what we wanted to do would be to put put pitchers on more of a plan instead of just get get them right into um you know going live i think we want to build pitchers a little bit and on-ramp them and and build VLO and then put them in a command phase and so we'll do that we we'll use a lot of technology with ref soto uh, obviously we use the blast sensors like i said with the hitters and we'll do that and pay attention to detail uh, Chris Dawson is a phenomenal coach for us. He works with our infielders and, and our base runners, and he's going to have a full go on, on getting that, those guys coached up. He kind of has a program, an eight week program, that he runs them through from an infield to a, uh, to a base running standpoint as well. So, um, but, but besides all that fun practice stuff, which uh, you know, all coaches get fired up about, I want to be able to learn the guys, what motivates them, you know, what are they, what are they interested about in their lives? Um, you know, with their parent, situation is like you know who who grew up tough and and uh you know i'm trying to learn each guy as we go
0: no that's great really really good so as far as like the training setting goes i would love to hear the amount of so you've got x amount of players you've got x amount of time and you guys are choosing to do what with it so just kind of like I, i'm always curious on how other programs spend their time because we you know we all have time constraints we will have a certain amount of players but we never really get to see other coaches practice so if if you don't mind just like what are you guys spending the most time on uh you said you guys mentioned you use quite a bit of technology as well so uh anything you've got in regards to those that or advice that you would give uh, to other coaches what would those be
1: so i think that every program should find a way to hit every day and Mm -hmm. we hit every single day um now whether that's like let's say the middle infielders go to the cage for 30 minutes. That's still 30 minutes with just the middle infielders. And then every other day, the hitters need to see ball flight. So they need to hit on the field, get the turtle out there, but don't have the same structure every day. You know, sometimes sometimes it's machine VP. Um, sometimes it's like off center. Uh, sometimes it's a velo day where, you know, Coach Mack and I, we call that like a fail day. Like you're probably going to fail today. Um, you know, the, the, the machine's pumped up to – a certain amount of velo and it's close and there's a reason for it um you know so change the structure of bp but every other day let them see ball flight let them make sure they're hitting the ball with backspin um, but also if you're not going to hit live on the field that day make sure that everyone gets in the cage and make sure you designate time for each position to do that so um, from a hitting standpoint we're going to go that route from a pitching standpoint in the fall and i i'm not like um I don't know, I'm not a small ball kind of a guy, like right away. So I really don't recommend that you get out there and start working bunk coverages and start working first and third plays. Instead, build the pitchers up. Let's build a program for them to start their throwing program. Let's make sure that they get their sprint work in. I don't want any long distance running. We're out of that era. No poles. It's not going to help. We're not teaching pitchers just to move slowly. We're teaching pitchers to move fast and explosively. So make sure that everything they do – uh is fast and explosive on the practice field but they need to spend time on the development of them um uh, their skill work when you're doing pfps and first and third plays you're doing that stuff you know uh two weeks in why are you doing that yet you know i i always i always i always was not a believer in that because you're not going to play in the nai and the ncaa you're not going to play games right away and you're, you're taking away from the development instead in the spring early spring work on that stuff um but in the fall it's all about personal development infield wise. Uh, we're on turf. So especially the players that aren't used to turf, let's get them used to it. A lot of mass fungo. Um, but then a lot of different structures to our fungo. Like for example, we're a big shift defense. We believe in shifts. We shift based off of data that we get. And so what do we want to do? We want to work our defense in the various shifts that we do. And so instead of just going out there and hitting our mass fungo, uh, where you just normally stand for what I call vanilla baseball. Uh, we've got to make sure that we put them in our different shifts, get them used to throwing from different arm angles, get them used to throws that maybe they're not used to. Um, so many things I can continue to touch on, but that's what we're spending a lot of our time on.
0: Oh, thank you for the outline. So you, you spend most of the fall uh, for individual development. When is the time that you start to introduce the stuff, the the team aspect stuff? I mean, I, you hear lots of different, but they've got, they've got to, at some point, understand, you know, the context within the team with, with all of those things that you mentioned, when do you start to introduce that? And when do you start to shift that focus from let's say 90% individual to 90% team?
1: We actually started in the fall. Um, So when we start scrimmaging or doing our live stuff, um, that's when really we're starting to buckle down and getting to know each other and making sure we know like, what guys skill sets can do for our team. Um, and so in our world series, um, certainly that's a time where we're together. Um, we also flip teams. So make sure they don't have the same teammates within that world series the whole time. Um, but you know, it sounds like what I was telling you is, is more individually based than it is to an extent, but um, there are lots of drills that we do together. Um, and uh, stretching is done together. And then our conversations on goal setting is done together. Weights are done together. Um, Classroom sessions are done together. Meetings are done together. So uh, the team aspect of of what we're trying to accomplish is still very, very intensely covered in the fall. Sure, in the fall, we're trying to maximize reps, but they are still getting that team aspect. And then once we move into our games in the fall, they're really getting it.
0: Awesome. So the transition, so you you guys have, have got your fall finished up. And you have w- been worried to death over winter break, and but everything goes good, and then you get all of your guys back uh, in January with with nothing nothing going on, nothing wrong, everything's good. And so, what is that? Uh, whenever you get to January, you because you've got a really a sprint to get to the first game of the season. What's the focus there, and where have you uh, where have you decided to spend your time with with all of that? You got to get pitchers ready, obviously. I'm sure you did that over winter break too. But uh, just thoughts on that
1: yeah when they you're talking about when they first come back in january january yes yeah yeah so january can be a very heavy indoor time for us um so like hitters like they're ready i mean when i coached at brown like it's in in the ivy league in rhode island it seems like everything we did was inside and i remember we took our first trip we went to uh, ucf down down in florida and i remember i was coaching first base for that trip and i had a heckler on me that somehow knew everything about my family but anyways um, it, the hitters were like, God, whenever we take this first trip, the ball just looks huge. We're not inside anymore. And so, yeah, that hitters are going to get ready. I think cause we can do a little bit of live inside. Um, but the pitchers have trouble. It's very monotonous. Uh, they're throwing the ball, they're, they're playing long toss by throwing the ball into nets. Um, and what we're trying to do if we're indoor for two week period of time, one week period, we're just trying to make it different and fun. Um, however we can. And so that is a huge challenge for us uh, to get them ready is really to keep them interested on what we're doing on a daily basis, because if it becomes too monotonous, then they're just like, we're gonna go play catch and go home. And so that's really the challenge to make sure that they stay motivated in, in, in January. But yeah, like you said it's a worried over the break you know some kids come back fat I come back fatter for sure um, <laughs> and you know it's like we're we're, we're just worried about that um, but we do everything we can with the resources we have in order to try to get them ready for usually February 1st game day
0: very cool what uh, what is what if we came and watched you guys practice and this is it's so I, I'm trying to find a better way to to really ask this question, but during the season we can't ever watch any other teams practice. We're busy with our own. So again, it probably depends on the, on the context. But let's say on a on a usual Wednesday when you guys are not playing, and uh, just w- like what what have you chosen to uh, to scale back on uh, for time purposes, probably and energy versus whatever you guys uh, making sure that you do every single day.
1: A lot of that is based off of how the last weekend went, as you know. Um, you, you know right. you're, you're, yeah. You've been in the game, but you know what you would see me doing? You would see me allowing my coaches to do their jobs. And uh, too many control freak coaches don't allow that. You would see me personally roaming to each area of the field where coaching points are being done, and you would see me evaluating that. Um, and I have such a good staff, I can coach every position. I think I could do it to a high level, but they're really good. And I'm wasting all these talented coaches if I'm not letting them do their job. Sure. And so what they do is they allow me to evaluate the players and even them to a degree in every single rep they take. Um, but you know, I think when we start practicing and during the season, we actually try to make it so we have an offensive day and a defensive day. Okay. Uh, but even in the defensive day like I said before they do hit in the cages. Um but they're going to be on at least a 45 minute cycle where they're doing various defensive drills that were already sent out to them before lunch. So they know what they're doing when they get there. Um now the BP days, they're still they're still going to get their their fungos during BP, but that's going to be a longer extended BP. Um because we feel like it's just so important to hit every day. So, you know, at least on an every other day basis, we're going to swing it live. And then, like I said, in the cage, we're going to swing it um, the other days, but um, we're not going to ever neglect defense. And then during the season, like I said before, we've got to do the little things right. Now we are working first and thirds. We are working bunt coverages. We're making sure we can play catch. So those things are mixed in as well.
0: What's your BP setup look like?
1: It depends. Um, usually we'll go, uh, like groups of five. Um, we put the, uh, the structure of the BP on the cage and, um, um, I'm blessed because I don't have to get out there and throw BP, um, because we've got coaches to be able to do that, but, uh, we make sure our infield is full. So there's, so there's fungos to be had. Uh, And obviously our pitchers are going to shag when they're done with their own work. Um, but usually it's groups of about four or five and, you know, it kind of it kind of depends on what we're doing within our rounds. Um, you know, a lot of times the first round is oppo, or a lot of times we'll just want them to kind of find the barrel uh, round one. I mean, we've had rounds, depending on how weekends have gone, um, you know, hit it off the center field wall. Um, we've had no ground ball rounds. Um, we do our execution rounds. We don't believe in neglecting that. Um, but it kind of depends on what we're struggling with. You know, if we struggle with velocity, we're going to address that. Um, and uh, I think that uh, you know, even two strike drills every now and then too. So the structure is never the same. I guess it, it gets changed a lot.
0: Oh, I love it. That's um, what, so. Another thing that you that you've mentioned uh, a couple of different times is uh, you 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 know you want to communicate with the players. You want to tell them the truth, and I think that one of your jobs is you know to keep the pulse on the team and, and make sure that guys that aren't playing are, are still motivated. And you know earlier you talked about the freshmen that had what they wanted, uh, but they had to be patient uh, before they could get what they get get what they wanted essentially. So what's your best advice on during a season? You've got some freshmen that are going to come in and they've been the best player on their team for most of their life and it's the first time that they're sitting on a bench where you've got guys that that are in much less of a, of a role than they thought that they would be in what does that relationship look like how like how do you how do you how do you play with that dynamic a little bit just because you want the culture to be good and you want everybody to be on the same page but you you know baseball it's there's only 9 or 10 that can play at one time so just what's the balance there? How do you go about it and the relationship dynamic? I mean, just walk us through what you what you try and do.
1: Well, I wish I had a better answer for you, but in the NAI, it's so hard. It's so hard. I mean, there's a couple schools. I'll, I'll, I'll leave them leave them nameless, but I've asked how many players do you have? 100, they'll say 120, 100, um, and it's like, well – that means you have a lot of players not getting what they want and you're not addressing all of them. <laughs> so, um, you know, I think at, and we're not going to have that many players, but I think at our level, you have to be able to counsel your coaches on how to handle those situations. And then you need to lean on them to do some of that. Um, I think that I would kind of take the lead on varsity players, Cause there's going to be players that don't get what they want. I mean, that's going to happen every single season, but then at a JV level, you've got to talk to your head JV coach and your support staff to be able to, um, handle it the right way. I've actually created scripts even on paper, uh, to be able to walk through each player when they're not getting what they want. And it's almost like a step-by-step process of kind of how to calm them down and address the problem. Um, and so I think you actually, at our level have to have a protocol because it happens more and i think that you use your experiences to create that protocol and then you all you all you know follow the same thing uh with varsity it's a little bit more unique because a lot of them have been playing baseball longer um and they have a real strong skill set so sometimes their gripe is even valid and if it is take a little ownership you know i mean i've had kids come in and be and i would say i don't think i used you right in that situation i think that's on me and i need to get better but you now, you also need to su- continue to support me because I'm the leader of the program and, you know, we're going to both try to make, not make mistakes. So it just varies at our level Jonathan, if that makes sense.
0: No, definitely. And I, I, you mentioned it just being authentic with it and trying to promote uh, them coming to talk with you about those things, because most of the issues that I feel like have that come up are because neither side is willing to address the issue and just just getting to talk with you for 50 minutes you are not afraid to have those uncomfortable conversations and i think that that's a big deal
1: yeah thanks for saying that it really is you got to stick your neck out there as a coach (laughs) because if you let them fester it's gonna it's gonna blow up i mean sometimes i'm sometimes i'm a little much uh but but i you know like last year or years previous we've had players say you know i just i just feel like uh you didn't use me right and I'm, i don't love the game anymore so i'm going to step aside It's like, well then you're really soft so yeah go ahead and step away you should it, you know you know what i mean so sometimes i'm a little much um but yeah you got to stick your neck out there and have the conversations you got to do it right away
0: sure with uh with uh after the season so you you know let, let's just rewind a couple of months ago you guys ha- had an awesome season and and unless we're winning a title at whatever level that we're at, there's going to be some disappointment, but you've also, you've got 25% ish of your team. That's moving on and hopefully bigger and better things that we all hope, but you've also got, you know, 75% of your team coming back. I think that's the math is right, but, (laughs) but yeah, not a math teacher. Uh, but within that you, you want to have them have a plan for next year and, You've got you've got probably your starting pitchers who are you, who have thrown a ton of innings, and you're like, hey, I, I want to limit this. Or you've got bench players who may have gotten 20 at bats all season, and you you know you have these exit meetings and telling them why. But what what is an efficient way to do that? And I I just I don't like the dynamic is a little bit different, but we all have to anybody who coaches. Uh, who coaches in, uh, in a team setting as far as in the spring is going to lose players to summer to go play other places. And, and they're going to miss out on, a, on two months of, of their development. How do we make sure that they, they know what they need to work on. They, that we're on the same page,
1: all of that. You know, uh, it's funny this year when it ended, there was no disappointment. And I know that sounds really weird, but I did a little research, my man. And uh, maybe this is the, the, the doctoral part of me. Uh-huh. And, I, and, I, and I noticed that these teams that were in the World Series, 10 teams go to the NEI World Series in Lewiston, Idaho. They all do things and have things within their control that we don't have. There's just certain things that those 10 teams can do uh, at their school or in their program or with budget or with money that we can't do. And uh, for us to get one day away from going to the NAI World Series, uh, I thought it was pretty special. Um, I've never been able Absolutely. to say that there. Yeah, I've never been able to say that it was no disappointment. I told my wife, I was like, "Man, I feel really good about this year." She's like, "What are you? Who am I married to?" Um, so, that's one part of it. Um, you know, with 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 what you asked, a lot of coaches have these like exit meetings, right? You probably had exit meetings. Um, I hate exit meetings. The reason why I hate them is because promises get made that can't get kept. And if I need to have an exit meeting with you before you leave in for the winter or before you leave for the summer, then I wasn't doing a good job in being in in communicating with you the whole time before the exit meeting. Like why are you so confused about everything right now? And it, and, and if, if that player continues to be con- confused, sometimes it's the coach's fault for not communicating throughout the fall or spring. So I don't have the exit meetings and I tell the guys, no exit meetings. If you are confused, come see me. I'm always willing to talk to you. And year in, year out, no one comes in. <laughs> so, um, you know, we think that we don't need to have those because we're so upfront as we go through the process. As we get into the summer, I am really worried about summer ball because not with my position players, but you know where I'm going with this, right? I mean, I'm going to send a pitcher – to this summer league that i never heard of and he's going to throw 120 pitches in seven innings. Why, why is he doing that? No one cares. You know, I almost want to tell the coach, no one cares about your game. No one cares if you win that game, you're hurting my investment. Like he's not your player. And, and um, I don't trust, unless it's a, 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 unless it's like the Northwoods league or, you know, teams like Macon Savannah uh, with, with coach McKinnon. And then I know Gillum, it was, involved with the, with the, with the, uh, with the bananas, but, uh, obviously the, uh, Cape Cod, which we're not going to say anybody there, but you get my point, those respected leagues, if they're in different leagues than that, I really just worry about pitchers. I'd rather them train. So it's sketchy.
0: Yeah. I'm right there with you. And, and I, I completely get it. And I, I enjoy the, uh, the different approach that you have. Cause you're saying, Hey, you're, you're out of high school. You're, 18 20 I mean, most of your kids are Juco guys you're 20 years old if you have any questions come talk to you so that's a that's a that's a a different take but I I can absolutely appreciate that yeah but so obviously a doctor and so you're a learner I I'm assuming since you got that degree you have continued to learn you're not just holding on to that but what yeah. is some, yeah. what is something that you've learned lately that uh, and it can be baseball wise or not but something that you've learned lately that that has excited you
1: yeah, I think that this is a personal thing. So okay. um, I'm not afraid to be open with this. Like I do struggle with anxiety. And um, what I've learned is, when my anxiety is under control. Um, I'm a better person. I'm a better coach. I'm a more relaxed person. And um, I make a better difference in the lives of others. And I I'm learning every day now when, cause I have my own issues with anxiety. I can identify I've been learning. I've learned about the fact that I can identify when other people are having it. I, I think there's people with anxiety disorders on my team and they don't even know. Um, and so what I've learned lately is how to identify when someone else is struggling with anxiety and then what I can do to cope with them. Because we have a lot of players and everybody in the country has a lot of players who struggle with anxiety and they either don't know, or they don't want to find out they could be so much better if they found out how to deal with that anxiety. Um, and I think that I've learned that I've, I could, I can make a difference in those kids. And and I think that that's why we've been really good in the moment, you know, the big moments, because they've been able to kind of, you know, for love of the game, like clear the mechanism. Um, and I think that they're able to do that because we have sat down and talked about handling the big moment and how to handle anxious, anxious situations. And I think that, um, that's something that I continue to learn every day is how to work with that.
0: So how can we, and this is a little off script, but how can we as coaches do a better job of what, well, recognize it in ourselves, but also other people. And what are some different things that have helped you? Because, it, I mean, I, being honest with you, I, I do that quite a bit, too. Uh, and it's something that I think we all. We all deal with it and, and to different degrees, uh, especially, and, and you're the head coach of a program and you've got a lot riding on that, which I'm sure a lot of that feel fuels into that, but just any advice for coaches who are nodding their head going, yes, I, I want to learn about that too.
1: Yeah. I, I think that you have to find somebody who has anxiety, who not necessarily has conquered it, but deals with it. And, you know, I guess admits that they have it, um, you know, I have players that have anxiety, and uh, he'll come over and tell me how he's feeling. Uh, well, I've got tingly feet. Um, I'm super nervous for the game. Um, you know, I'm lightheaded. I'm like, oh, you're having anxiety. He's like, anxiety. They like, say anxiety. What do you mean? I'm like, this is an anxiety attack. It'll go away. You know, and I think that um, you have to have someone in your corner who, is able to walk you through an anxiety attack or a panic attack Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, some people anticipate failure and I do it all the time. I anticipate losing. I hate it. I hate that about myself. You know, um, my coaches make fun of me all the time. At one point last year we were were 11 and 0 and they were like, are you happy? And I would just say, man, I hope we don't lose the, the next game. And they're like what is wrong with you and it's because you know i just have this natural anxiety that mm-hmm. i'm trying to get better at so you have to be able to talk to people who deal with anxiety and then you you, you can't if it's really to a degree that's, that's out of your control you can't be afraid to talk to professionals you just can't
0: oh, i love hearing that and and thank you for the vulnerability uh, i know that that it's not something that's not something that's easy to admit especially us as, as you know the male population. I think that it's even less of so, but, uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Cause I think that, that, that's definitely, definitely super helpful. Uh, the next question is what is something that you have recently changed your mind about and why did you make that change?
1: Um, you know, well, I would say like we were always, we always shifted defensively, but we're pretty aggressive. And I changed, my, I changed my mind about it to to go that route. I I, did, I wanted to always shift. And I was, like, always fearful that a ground ball would be hit to a, you know, a traditional spot and it would go through the infield and then I'd want to bash my head through the dugout wall. But I recently, like, last up to last year, I changed my mind, as long as we have data, to shift aggressively to hitters' tendencies. And Coach Dawson, who actually coaches the Joplin Outlaws, their summer team, he's there right now. But he, uh, he's a calming presence for me and he's, you know, we've gone over data and and um, I know pitchers get frustrated with it, but I have really bought into it. I've really bought into it. And it's weird because as a fan, like I haven't bought into it. Like baseball for the common fan is getting a little boring. And uh, it sounds terrible for me to say that, but what happens now in baseball, right? The guy either strikes out, hits a jack or grounds into the shift. It's like the same thing every at-bat. I want to do it as a coach because it helps us win. And when I'm part of the operation, I'm still having fun. But as a fan, it's like I almost don't want to see shifts. So kind of funny, right?
0: That's really, really good. Next question is, if you had to pick out one drill or one drill series or one type of thing that you guys do in practice that your players absolutely buy in and love and you show up and you're you're like hey guys we're doing this today everybody gets excited what would that be
1: you know we installed this um what we do is we usually like what four weeks into the fall we do uh like an exit velo contest and um we'll do it we'll do it off the t and uh that's one thing we kind of actually save for indoor because it's not just okay get your flips you know get your angled bp um you know use your short bat use your whatever it's actually all right today competition we're gonna do uh you know an exit velo contest and you know we put our results uh on twitter it's fun we we talk about who won we interview who won um it's also really important to know Mm -hmm. every player's exit velo not Mm -hmm. not only off a tee but off of flips um and so like it's really it's really helpful for us as coaches but it's also a big one um you know, and it does help, too, with giving players a little bit of recognition True. on where they are with pop. Um, and so it's just all all together. It's a great it's a great activity.
0: So I've, I've recently come up with a theory and being a dad has given me all kinds of new insights on the, the youth mind. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so I I think because we I was all on the bandwagon of kids don't know how to compete. Blah, blah, blah. about you know, five years ago. And I've started to come to realize realization that everyone loves to compete, but very few understand the strategy it takes to win. And so whenever we see kids shrink back and not want to participate or not understand what how to win a competition, that's when we see, because I'll be honest, I do the same thing with like, if, if I was playing chess, I would not be a very competitive person because I don't know the rules and the strategy it takes to win. And I don't feel like I'm competent enough to do that. And so, you know, when you bring up the, the competition, I guess that's just been because I have a three year old and he doesn't know anything. He just know that he doesn't like to lose. And 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 he's three. Right. And you, you, you know the same thing, but it's something that's innate in us. We do like to compete. But I, I think that if we can if we can teach the strategy behind it that's when we're going to get more kids to buy into. Oh, okay. So if I do, if I can do X, Y, and Z, that's going to change the, you know, the momentum of the game or that's, or if I can say X, Y, and Z, that's going to help me stay in tune. Keep my, you know, I just think that a lot of kids are unaware of that aspect of it. I don't know. I, maybe I'm just spitballing here. Maybe I'm by myself, but I, any thoughts on that? Am I no? off?
1: You are, you are right about that. They find out what to do in order to produce more exit velo And, and, uh, that's why that drill is so good because what do we want as coaches? We want more XYZ below. So they're not only are they trying to win and then, you know, brag about winning, but just like your three-year-old and my kid, um, you know, they're trying to learn more about how to do it, and uh, you know that 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 does really help the process, you know. And yeah, three-year-olds hate to lose mm-hmm. just as much as eighteen to twenty-two-year-olds hate to lose. Or if you're in the NAI, your player could be fifty-six, so you don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that. Well, before we go, I people are always asking, you know, what books we should read or or what we should dig into more. I'd love to hear are there any resources that y- you've loved that that have helped shape your coaching career that you would recommend to to the people listening?
1: So, there's a podcast and um, Bill Walsh, the former uh, 49ers head coach, um, and he passed away maybe 4 or 5 years ago. Um, But Bill Walsh talks about on a podcast, he he has his book now is actually, you can listen to it. And he talks about um, how to change a culture because the 49ers, when he took over in 1979, uh, the 49ers were a miserable organization. Um, Years and years of losing, no fans in the stands. um, And Bill Walsh came in and he talks about not only like the draft, obviously they drafted guys like Joe Montana in 1979. And then they end up, you know, being very good, but he talks about holding every single person in the organization accountable. And that's from the janitor to the starting quarterback. Um, and I think that when he started doing that, um, he saw a difference in the culture of, of the 49ers and um, accountability is really what he what he focuses on in that book. I like it because he doesn't necessarily talk about the stars and the West Coast offense and the four Super Bowls in the 80s. Um, by the way, I can talk about the Niners all day because I'm a Niners fan. <laughs> um, but he talks more about like the accountability of each player, each coach, each employee. It's really cool. I, I recommend anything with Bill Walsh. Look into it. So let me let
0: me get your opinion on this with with uh, with in regards to that. And so, do you think that when we're thinking assistant, you're the head of the organization, assistant coaches and players, if they have clarity on what's expected. Can, will they, will they be more disciplined within that uh, versus we hold them accountable and without clarity, which is just, I think the wrong way to go about it. So I I think that having, having, and not necessarily telling them, like you, you said, you've had, you have some assistant coaches that do a really, really good job, but they also know from a program perspective, the guidelines of where you guys are trying to go, which comes from you. If we didn't have that, could we hold players accountable because or and and even coaches because i think when you read bill walsh's books you hear all these different things that he wanted from all of the different people within the organization well once you have that now you can hold them accountable to that because they know what's expected does that make sense
1: absolutely and if you don't have accountability the, the coach dropped the ball right i mean if there's no accountability if there's no um I guess, uh, prerequisites to understanding what they need to do, or there's right. no vision on, on what's expected of them, mm-hmm. then they can come back and tell you that. And it's on you as long as if, if you did mess up and not do that. Um, you know, we've had players, um, do that before, you know, where they've come in and they've said, well, I didn't know that I was going to be you know, expected to do this and that. And, sure. you know, that's why like everything you do in practice now needs to, uh, needs to be documented. So, I was talking to Damon Neidlinger, who is the head baseball coach at Santa Rosa Junior College, one of the best coaches in the program. Just last night, he says we chart BP, we chart it. Like who, like who charts BP? Like that's crazy. And so, like someone will come in and claim that they're meeting expectations, right? And then they'll say, "Look, you're not." Um, and so, you know, it's the same thing that my boss I hope would do. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you're right. And And that's why coaches like adapt or die. Like Mm -hmm. you need to show this generation that they've either lived up to your standards or they haven't.
0: Right. Well, I just know that as an assistant coach, if I'm, if I'm clear on the expectations, then I know what to do. If I'm unclear, then I'm going to be more hesitant to not do things and in some ways to step on people's toes, but also because I didn't know that that was the expectation. I, I think that, you know, looking down the road, if I'm ever a head coach that, you know, we, we want to give them guidelines with some freedom within that, but with clear expectations on what, what the expectations are. And I, I, you're that you're a head coach. And so I, I wanted to hear that and, and hear your thoughts on that as well. But uh, man, Dr. Moses, Brian, man, I, I appreciate your time. I, I loved getting to, to talk with you and, and chit chat today and uh, over the, over the great sport that we have, but I will leave you with a little bit of time uh, for the guests. I, I've got all the resources the list below and any contact information uh, for, for Dr. Coach Brian Moses. And uh, is there anything else that you'd like to tell them before you go?
1: No, no, I appreciate it. Uh, If I ever get contacted by anybody, just call me Brian. Don't worry about the doctor part. I'm, I'm, I was, uh, I'm really, I'm really, it's all good. I I really, uh, really appreciate what you're doing. I mean, ahead of the curve, I think is ahead of the curve. I think it's doing it. What you're doing is, Is really awesome. Um, I've I've looked into a lot of your other podcasts. Um, You've you've interviewed some real stars, and then you've interviewed some some diamonds in the rough. And it's great to get opinions out there and help people learn. So we appreciate you as well.
0: Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google. Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.